Welcome to Suspending the Rules, Bloomberg Government's weekly look at what's happening in Congress. It's recess week here in Washington, and spring is in the air. Temperatures are rising, the cherry blossoms will be blooming in just a couple weeks, and budget hearings are already underway. In other news, President Trump issued the first veto of his presidency on Friday. Another one could be coming soon. This is Suspending the Rules from Bloomberg Government. I'm Adam Taylor. And I'm Danielle Parnas. In the second segment, we'll look at net neutrality legislation that the House could consider when lawmakers return to Washington. First, though, it's those vetoes. Last week, the Senate passed a joint resolution to overturn the president's national emergency declaration at the southern border, and another to end U.S. support for Saudi Arabia's involvement in Yemen's civil war. The White House opposes both measures. Back on the show now to discuss are our fellow legislative analyst, Noreen Chowdhury. Hi. And Michael Smallberg. Thanks for having us. Welcome back. Let's start with the veto that's already happened, which was on the resolution to undo the president's emergency declaration. We've talked about it a lot on previous episodes. Michael, though, refresh our memory on why the president made this declaration. Let's do a a quick recap here. So towards the end of last year, President Trump said he wanted $5.7 billion to build a wall on the southern border to address what he calls a a security crisis, a humanitarian crisis. Congress said no. This led to a a 35-day partial government shutdown. Uh, Eventually, lawmakers did pass a seven-bill spending package that included um, just $1.4 billion for certain types of border fencing with some strings attached. The president begrudgingly signed that that measure, but then also issued an emergency declaration, which he said would let him basically take as much as $3.6 billion that Congress had already appropriated for military construction and move that towards his border wall projects. The joint resolution that Congress is using to try to overturn that emergency declaration isn't a normal kind of bill. It gets expedited treatment, which is really the reason why the Senate voted on it at all. Michael, tell us more about that process. Sure. The emergency declaration that the president issued um, was issued under a law called the National Emergencies Act, or the NEA. That law gives the president broad powers to declare an emergency, but it also lets Congress cancel the emergency if it passes a joint resolution of disapproval. So this is done under a fast-track timeline in the House and the Senate. And if one chamber passes it, the other one has to take it up under that same expedited process. So that's how Democrats were able to force the Republican-controlled Senate to vote on this measure. So we had the House passing this. A few weeks ago, there were 13 Republicans who joined Democrats to pass that joint resolution. And on the Senate, actually, we had 12 Republicans who joined with Democrats. So this sent the, the measure to the president, who issued a veto last week. The veto isn't the end of the story for this resolution, though. What What's coming next? Well, Speaker Pelosi uh, has already said that the House will be voting to overturn that veto next week when Congress returns from recess. You know, obviously, you need a two-thirds majority uh, in the House and the Senate. And it looks like, you know, we're, we're still pretty short of that threshold in both chambers. Um, but even then, that's not the end of the story here. The NEA actually requires Congress to, every six months, to review the existing emergencies and to decide whether or not to overturn them once again. So Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer has already said that he thinks Democrats should use that part of the law to bring this disapproval resolution up every six months. So this could become something of a a biannual tradition. And beyond that, let's remember, too, that we have these lawsuits that state uh, attorneys general and border landowners and environmental groups have filed to overturn the emergency. And this resolution could become a part of their lawsuit as a way to show that the president may have overstepped his boundary by trying to take money that Congress expects 
explicitly did not provide. So we could, as I said, see this part of the litigation process as well. In the days just before the Senate voted, Senator Mike Lee of Utah introduced a bill that would limit presidential authority to declare emergencies going forward. What was that about? So this was uh, an attempt to work out a deal to vote on this measure from Senator Mike Lee instead of perhaps um, voting in favor of the disapproval resolution. So what this bill would do is it would automatically cancel emergencies uh, after 30 days unless Congress approves them. So it kind of flips the current process around. The current process is that the emergency lasts for at least a year unless Congress cancels it. Uh, But importantly, this bill would only apply to future emergencies. It wouldn't have done anything to cancel Trump's border emergency declaration. So Democrats said it was in that sense really just a fig leaf because it was only taking action to address emergencies in the future. Speaker Pelosi said she wouldn't bring it up for a vote in the House. And eventually it wasn't even clear whether Trump would support this. So so this measure was at least delayed for now, although lawmakers said they, they have expressed some interest in perhaps putting some more limits on the president in the future when he or she tries to invoke the National Emergencies Act to make a declaration. The other resolution drawing a veto threat involves the four-year-old civil war in Yemen. Noreen, what's the story there? So rising tensions with Saudi Arabia um, after journalist Jamal Khashoggi's murder have really renewed scrutiny of U.S.-Saudi relations, and in particular, U.S. support for the Saudi-led intervention in Yemen. The conflict there began as a uh, civil war between the Yemeni government and Houthis in the north who were protesting their marginalization, and that civil war became a regional proxy war when the Houthis took control of Yemen's capital and President Hadi was removed from office. So since March 2015, um, Saudi Arabia has led a coalition of Arab countries to reinstate Hadi. So just like Congress can reverse presidentially declared emergencies, it has the ability to limit military action under what's called the War Powers Resolution. What do we need to know about that? So under that law, the president has to report to Congress when U.S. troops are sent into hostilities or potential hostilities without a declaration of war or congressional authorization. The War Powers Resolution allows Congress to direct the president to remove troops through a joint resolution or a bill that's subjected to expedited procedures. So last Wednesday, the Senate passed a joint resolution which would end U.S. support for the Saudi-led intervention in Yemen, and that measure was designed to take advantage of those expedited procedures in the Senate, which allow members to force a vote, limit floor debate, and avoid other procedure blocks that opponents could use. Now that the Senate has passed this, what comes next for this resolution? So the House is likely to pass the joint resolution, but the administration has thrown a veto and said the resolution would set a bad precedent by defining hostilities to include what it considers to be um, cooperative defensive activities, in this case, in-flight refueling of non-U.S. aircraft. It has said that it considers hostilities to be limited to situations involving active exchange of fire, according to a letter from the Pentagon. And this is another veto that Congress won't be able to override, right? Yeah, correct. It's unclear if the measure would reach the two-thirds threshold needed in the House and Senate to override a a veto. In this case, we don't have enough uh, Republican support. The Senate's 54 to 46 vote last Wednesday is short of the 67 needed to do that. Thanks, Michael and Noreen. They are both legislative analysts at Bloomberg Government. Subscribers can find all their work at BGov.com. In just a moment, we'll dive into the fight over net neutrality. Just before Congress departed last week for recess, 
House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said that the House could consider legislation to reinstate Obama-era net neutrality rules shortly after they get back to town. Adam Taylor has been following this bill, known as the Save the Internet Act, for BGov. So he's moved to the other side of the table, where he's joined now by Bloomberg Law technology reporter John Reed. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. To start, um, what exactly is net neutrality? Net neutrality is the requirement on ISPs that you treat all content equally without blocking, slowing, or prioritizing certain content. It's a requirement on ISPs such as Comcast, AT&T, and Verizon, basically. And ISP is Internet Service Provider. Correct. Right. That includes wireless and wireline, however you get your internet. So it sounds like everyone agrees on the basic outlines um, or principles. So what was the big opposition to the FCC's rules in 2015? The big opposition is that the um, FCC under Chairman Tom Wheeler, a Democrat, and the Obama administration, he directed the FCC and had them adopt a rule that would basically reclassify ISPs as a telecommunication service under the uh, Title II of the Communications Act that basically imposes sort of common carrier utility-style regulations on, on ISPs. I mean, Republicans oppose that because it gives the FCC a lot of authority to police how ISPs police content on their networks. Yeah, uh, the common carrier regulations, they're they are very broad. They actually include things like there, there's privacy rules, there's disability access, there's universal service, there's also price regulation. You could actually see price controls. The FCC declined to enforce most of those. They, they did include things like poll attachments, really granular things to, to help new competitors potentially enter the market, and privacy rules, which Congress actually overturned separately. But the pricing, the, the basic consumer price rules that apply to phone companies, they declined to apply those to, to ISPs under these rules. But you still saw providers, uh, ISPs and, and industry, really rally hard against these Title II regulations, the common carrier kind of thing. And they, they've continued that march through today. So it sounds like the Democrats uh, Save the Internet Act would, would essentially just reinstate those FCC rules. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly what the, the text of the bill says. It, it undoes the 2017 order from the Republican-controlled FCC under Chairman Ajit Pai, it repeals that order, which repealed the 2015 net neutrality rules, open internet order, and reinstates the 2015 order and all the rules that were in effect the day that the FCC reversed course. Republicans have introduced their own net neutrality proposals. Tell us about those. So those bills basically would they'd ban ISPs from those practices requiring them and require them to treat content equally, but it would not restore Title II. It would do under Title I, so it would kind of limit the FCC's authority there. And they argue, that therefore, it would be better for business. ISPs say that uh, the Title II regulations deter investment and are bad for business. And increase compliance costs as well. That's a yeah. big, big part of their argument. The Republican bills, they would basically just create new statutory bans on blocking, throttling, paid prioritization. One of them, uh, Bob Latta's bill, would potentially open the door to more regulation by banning discriminatory practices more generally. Greg Walden's bill, on the other hand, would actually ban the FCC from going beyond those basic protections at all. And then there's another one from Congresswoman McMorris Rogers, who it's just kind of down the middle. It wouldn't block the FCC from expanding its authority or expand it directly. So they stop short of the, the Democrats bill, but do it in slightly different ways. Now, Democrats and net neutrality advocates have opposed the GOP proposals. Can you tell us why? Yeah, uh, Democrats say that the Republican bills don't really have any teeth. They argue that the FCC needs to have the authority to, under Title II, to ensure that ISPs are treating all content equally. And the subcommittee, Energy and Commerce uh, Telecommunications Subcommittee Chairman Mike Doyle also uh, 
frequently talks about flexibility, that the FCC would have the power under Title II to police technologies as they develop. You don't really know what's going to come out there in the future, and he wants to make sure the FCC has the authority to police new technologies as well. And he thinks Republican bills wouldn't give the FCC the power to do that. Some advocates have also said the common carrier regulation is part of the point, being able to regulate prices if they need to because ISPs, especially broadband ISPs, are generally a monopoly or duopoly situation. So you don't have a lot of price competition, especially in rural areas. And so the kind of sword hanging over ISPs to say, don't overcharge your customers is part of the point for, for some advocates. And some of the other things, the privacy rules or disability rules or, or poll access rules also help new entrants and can prevent monopoly power from developing. So what happens from here? Are, do any of these bills have a chance of being enacted anytime soon? It's a great question. Yeah. So I don't think any of them have a good chance of being enacted soon, but there could be some movement. There likely will be some movement. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi at her press conference last week said that net neutrality is a priority once Congress gets back next week. So that could move soon. Mike Doyle told reporters last week that his subcommittee will mark up the Save the Internet Act by the end of the month. That's likely to happen. So there should be movement on the House side soon. And Democrats do have the votes to pass it without a lot of Republican support. But obviously, the Republican-controlled Senate's not going to take up that bill. Chairman Wicker in the Senate Commerce Committee has much of a desire to take up net neutrality this year. But he did form a working group with Senator Kirsten Sinema, a moderate Democrat from Arizona, who is the lone Democrat in the Senate not to co-sponsor the Save the Internet Act, the version in the Senate. So there could be some attempt at a compromise there, but I don't think most Democrats would back that approach. I know there are, there are some in the industry, and when, when we say industry, we should differentiate internet companies like Google and Yahoo and Amazon, Facebook, Twitter. They support net neutrality rules and even support Title II because they their content rides over those pipes that the ISPs control. It's the ISP industry, AT&T, Comcast, Verizon, that, that really, really oppose the Title II rules. And as John said, the, the Save the Internet Act looks dead in the Senate once it gets there. Some in the, the ISP industry have called for compromise, but I don't know if, if the room for that exists because Democrats and net neutrality advocates have pushed so hard into the utility style regulation, making that part of the point, not just a means to an end. That's a great point. And then also, at the same time, on a parallel track, you have this court fight going on in the D.C. Circuit, net neutrality advocates, internet companies such as Mozilla, and then also about 23 state attorney generals and some public interest groups have sued to block the FCC's repeal of the Obama-era net neutralities in court. And that ruling could come out in June, July. That's what I'm hearing from legal sources. And that would change the dynamic if it gets overturned or gets upheld. You could see one, either Democrats or Republicans, come to the table, hat in hand, as it were. Great. Well, thanks, John and Adam. That's our show. We'll talk to you again next week when Congress returns. Thank you for listening to Suspending the Rules. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Find more on the subjects we discussed today and a whole lot more from Bloomberg government at about.begov.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at BGov. The legislative analyst team is Sarah Babbage, Noreen Chowdhury, Danielle Parnas, Michael Smallberg, and me, Adam Taylor. Our editor is Adam Shank. Nico Anzalata is our sound engineer. Our theme music is Home Organ by Zach Nasita. More information on that can be found at premiumbeat.com.